You're listening to the Lean Built Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Andrew. In this podcast, we discuss our manufacturing companies, lean principles, and the freedom that we're pursuing in life and business. So Jay, we are a few weeks into January. The new year is in full swing and I bought a lathe. Yeah, congrats. That's exciting. It does feel good. The one we've been talking about, right? Yeah, it's a Doosan. Exact model is... I can never remember the model I get. Lynx 2100 is my guess. Yes, it's a Lynx 2100 LSYB, but we should have that in our shop next week. If I remember correctly, like we have an LSYC, L lathe, S subspindle, Y has Y travels and live tools and B and C, ABC. I don't know if they make an A, but that's the designation I think of the size, like the bed length, the longest part you could put in. So yeah, nice little compact, nice machine and a bar feeder, right? Yes, we got an Amco bar feeder with it. Yep. And got some tooling, Royal Collis systems, a few things. We bought it from another shop up in Indy that's moving to a different location. And they were downsizing a little bit and didn't have any active jobs running on that lathe and decided to unload it rather than relocate it and then have to hunt down a bunch of work for it. So it gets that off their floor and out of their hair before their moot. And it gets it onto our floor and gives me additional capabilities to play around with. And I'll finally learn to program a lathe. So what's your timeline look like? When are you going to get it? Uh, it's going to be rigged in end of next week. Okay. And uh, talk me through the whole thing. Do you have the rigor? Do you have pricing? So we had a couple different that? things to figure out because it's a used machine and we're getting it in this area, Ellison's the distributor for Doosan. The warranty, any remaining unused training time, other things that would have been included in the original package of the new lathe for the current owner are not transferable. So if we want to have in-house training, we have to pay for that and the machine won't come with a warranty but it's in great shape. We've gone over it carefully and I'm content with that. The, the situation with rigging is in the past, we've used two different riggers depending on what we're doing. When we've taken new machine deliveries, where a machine comes in from Chicago to Indianapolis and then comes from Indianapolis down to our shop and gets uncrated and brought inside and set on, we've used a rigger that has a close relationship with Yamazin and they just everything there is very smooth. You just tell them what day you want it here. They go pick it up. They tarp it. They bring it down, they uncrate it, they bring it in, it's great. The last time I used them was kind of a negative experience. It was buying a showroom machine. So still a brother, still buying from Yamazin, but it was a machine that didn't come crated. There was some kind of miscommunication about the delivery location and or the conditions of the delivery location. Delivery location, meaning your location? Yes. Okay. (laughs) It wasn't that they went to the wrong place, but the person I had talked to at the rigger to set up the appointment and everything, I had made sure to tell them, we have a gravel lot. You're going to need to bring steel plates. There were certain things they needed to bring to successfully unload their large forklift outside our building that the guys didn't get told. And so they got here and we didn't have a way to get their forklift off their truck and into our building. And so it dragged on and everybody was getting frustrated. They were annoyed that they had missed information. I was frustrated that the person I had told it to hadn't communicated it to the driver and the forklift operator that were going to come down. And then while all that was happening, it started sleeting and freezing rain. And I had this machine outside on their truck, shrink wrapped, but no tarp and no big crate. And we started getting ice buildup all over the ramp up to, by our loading dock. And so when we finally managed to get the forklift off, which itself was kind of sketchy, we backed their trailer up and then dropped the gate partway onto our loading dock. And it was okay. sketchy. It raised my blood pressure to an unreasonable degree. Oh, I bet. When we finally got everything off. 
there was ice forming all over the ramp. And we oh. had to then back their truck up and lift this R650 off. And everything was slippery. I actually walked away and left. I went around the backside of the building and just answered some emails on my phone because I didn't want to be there watching it. It was stressing me out. <laughs> That's funny. Overall, that experience wasn't great. And then it ended up costing more than I had initially been quoted because of a variety of reasons. So I then switched to a different millwright who is out of Columbus, Indiana. And he did our shop move in 2021, where we relocated our speedios and all of our other equipment from our garage shop to the current place. And that was great. But that's basically a one-man show and he doesn't own a large forklift or his own trucking. And so what he does is when you schedule a job, when we did that job, he just came by in his car and checked out the whole shop, took measurements, got all the weights, figured out what size truck he was going to need, what size fork he was going to need, and just rented a forklift, had it dropped off at our shop, showed up with a truck, loaded everything on, loaded the forklift, and then we went to the new shop and unloaded everything and placed it. And it was very, very smooth. That was a short move, like a 10-minute drive from one location to the next. Mm -hmm. In this case, I'd intended to use the same rigger, but because it needed to be rigged out of somebody's shop and then rigged into ours, it was going to involve renting a forklift up in Indianapolis and renting a separate forklift down here and getting a truck to go between I talked to a friend of mine locally about borrowing his larger forklift. And the more I got into the weeds on that, the complications and the logistics, and also the schedule upon which this other rigor was available, had fewer open days that were closer to the deadline than I liked, where the first rigor was like, oh yeah, we have time. We have multiple trucks and multiple forklifts and crews. We can definitely fit you in on any day you want next week. Tell us the day. We'll be there. So the flexibility of a totally open schedule them having their own truck and their own forklift for the whole thing, not having to coordinate any third-party rentals and having them have the ability in a pinch if the weather got bad or something happened to be able to pick the machine up, tarp it and store it for a couple of days and then bring it down. All those factors combined to me being willing to spend a little bit more money to hit the easy button. Mm -hmm. In a lot of places in the business, money buys you an easy button that otherwise you would have had to scrap your way through with some other solution. Yeah, And that is, it's hard to justify the added stress to save a little bit of money here or there. Oh yeah. It's just sitting here thinking of, oh man, all the rigging stress stories I've had. I remember, I think each one was a takeaway. One, one in particular was I had this customer that was local-ish. He was about, oh, I'd say 45 minutes away, but he insisted on having a face-to-face sit-down meeting about an application. And I said, well, we've already emailed back and forth. We've exchanged drawings. This is what we would suggest. It was a vacuum application. He said, no, I just, I got to be there in person. I have to see it. I need to put your product in my hands. I want my part in your hands. And then we talk about it. I said, okay, but I'm not going to see anything that's going to change. But he was just insistent. And I said, okay, well, yeah, sure. Come on by. If you want to drive 45 minutes, an hour round trip, for a 15-minute meeting, great. Let's go for it. So he said, the only day I can do it is this one day, say like Thursday at noon. And I said, oh, I can't do it. We're reconfiguring the shop and we have riggers here and I need to be on site. And the backstory there is I always pay riggers to move machines around. And one of the things with lean manufacturing is the environment should exist to serve us. We shouldn't exist to tolerate the environment. And so that classic story of my guy Juan that got that fit bitch or, or step counter watch and found out that in an eight hour shift, he walked eight miles. We were reconfiguring the shop so that didn't happen. And so the guy picked the time when the rigor was showing up. I said, no, I can't. And he's already being super insistent and pushy. He said, look, 
it's Thursday at this time or I'm walking away. And me, I'm thinking, okay, it's totally inconvenient. This guy, he's going to spend several thousand dollars with me. I've already put an hour plus of time into our conversation. Okay, sir, come on down. So there's the Ragers showing up at like 10 a.m. They're moving stuff around. I said, look, this customer's coming in at noon. I'm telling John, just know that they need to put it here. This is a distance from the wall. It's just pretty straightforward. So then the customer shows up. We're at my desk, which is about, there's a couple walls in between, probably if there are no walls, maybe 30 or 40, 30 feet, call it 30 feet from where the machine was being placed. And we're talking and I'm already kind of irritated. And plus the stress of having rigors there just always raises my blood pressure. And I hear, actually I hear and feel a giant thud. In, this was two buildings ago. And the concrete slab was, it was pretty crappy. It was like at best three inches thick. So I'm like, oh my gosh, I just cringed. And the customer goes, oh, that sounded expensive. And I'm like, yeah, it sure did. Anyways, come on, let's wrap this up. Like I'm thinking all this. I don't know if I said that, but uh, we wrapped it up. I went out there and I looked at John and John was like white. Okay. I said, what happened? He said, they dropped the machine. So if you've ever seen rigging, like, I don't know what the situation was, but on the forks, they put a thin piece of plywood between the fork and the bottom of the machine because metal on metals, especially the bottom of a used machine has an oil layer of just tramp oil that's leaked. And this was my Haas mini mill, which in particular, um, it's not a, not well sealed. It's leaky. It's leaky. Exactly. And it's just, they tip the fork forward too much and it's a light machine and it's a top heavy machine. It's got a welded steel base and it just slid and fell off. It fell probably a distance of two inches, but you get, I don't know, 2000 pounds dropping two inches. That's a big deal. Yep. And I thought the slab was cracked, but you know, the good thing is it was a mini mill. So it was my cheapest machine. The other good thing is we had in anticipation of it, we just blocked the spindle to the table. I don't know why we did that. We just thought it needed to be done. You kind of don't need to do that. That's mostly to keep the table from moving in X and Y in transportation, but the spindle head was actually locked in place by the brake, the default brake. And so, yeah, it was just one of those nightmare things. And I was, I had to walk away and not just walk away, but go for a walk at times, a light jog, just to flush out my blood and get the adrenaline out of my system. Yep. And then I, I asked for a credit. I said, dude, you guys dropped my machine. We know there is damage that's unacceptable. What can you do? Kind of putting the ball in their court. And they said, yeah, you know what? We'll, uh, we moved three machines for you. We're just going to pay for our time just to get the guys back and forth, but we'll waive it all the actual machinery moving costs. And I said, done. Fortunately, there was no issues with the mini mill, but that was one. Another one, because when you said you had delivery location issues, was we had a machine, let me think here, being picked up. Oh, I know what it was. Oh, it was the CMM. That's right. So I went with the lowest bidder, which I probably won't do again. The CMM is a light machine that they've moved them before. So they picked it up in Anaheim about an hour and a half, two hours away. And I told them, and this is what I've learned. Good tip for the audience. Always put all your correspondence in writing with the riggers. So they picked it up. It, Of course, they're the speed limit on the highway here in California is 55 for trailers. So I get back to the shop and I'm waiting and I'm like, did they stop for lunch or were they going 45? It's been several hours. Where are they? Then I get a call from the lady at the office. Hey, the riggers are there. They say you aren't there. I'm like, oh no, I'm here. And I immediately knew that they had our old address from two addresses ago. And I said, nope, 
look at the address. And she said, yeah, 4545 Industrial Street, or maybe it would have been Runway. And I said, nope, that's her old address. And she said, okay, we're going to have to bill you for that extra. And I said, nope, look, literally look at our last email correspondence. I asked for the quote from this address to 671 Cochrane Street, our current address. And then you gave me the quote. I said, yes. And I just want to confirm that you updated our address in the system. And she goes, okay, well, I think we can waive it this one time. Can you believe that? Like, yeah, let's go ahead and waive it this one time because there won't be another time. And that's just, those are the bookends of like the worst story and the best story, but there's several in between. I've definitely had at least a handful of, I just got to walk away and just not witness this right now. Yeah. That's true of a lot of things though. Like in life, there are plenty of things that it's perfectly fine for them to get done. Yeah. And I don't want to watch them while they happen. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ideally, most of what goes on in our companies should be, we don't need to be watching. So, well, not just don't need to be watching, but I mean, there are plenty of things like my kids are learning to load the dishwasher. My younger kids are not good at loading a dishwasher yet. Of course. But the reality is in most of the cases, the dishes are getting clean enough. It's yeah. fine. And it's preference. It's- in some cases, in, in my case, it's an absolute science. But, <laughs> okay. But certainly them learning to do it is going to be a function of getting a lot of reps. On yeah, it. that's right. And I need to not watch all those repetitions because I won't be able to keep my mouth shut and it will irritate me needlessly and they won't benefit from my intervention at that point. That's good. That's good. My wife and I just had a similar discussion saying, I think our youngest son, he's ready to start getting in on dishes. And she said, yeah, but he's going to screw it up and do it wrong and not load it to the optimal load, you know? And Uh I said, yeah, sweetheart, of course he's not going to, but he's going to get about 70% of the way. Either you fix it or you teach him the right way to do it. But that's the thing with kids. You're just hoping for better than 50% competency. Yep. Yeah, it's good. Okay, so another question on that, or here, a backstory is when I've had machines moving from different facilities or have an incoming machine, oh, I've moved to Texas and then I moved back. It's super tricky to get a long distance trucker to actually show up when they say they're going to show up and then have your rigger show up at the same time. Now, I know your situation is kind of a little bit different, but I've always opted to have a machine be delivered to a hub, transferred onto the rigger's semi, and then they come out. That's ideal. Is that what's going on in this case? Two separate companies? No, single company. Great. Single company is the rigger. They own the truck. They own the forklift. They're going to provide a two-man crew. They're going to go to the current location of the lathe. We're going to meet them there just to be there for it. And then they will load the machine, tarp the machine, store it at their facility overnight, and then have we have like a 9 a.m. appointment the following day mm-hmm. at our shop for them to be there with the machine, untarp it, unload it, bring it inside the building, place it, and we're good. Yeah, great. But yeah, great. anytime you're coordinating multiple things mm-hmm. with different companies, it's multiplication. Yeah, you, yeah, absolutely. The chance of error increases so dramatically. Speaking of error, I think you made the right decision by not borrowing your friend's forklift. Because I've tried to go the cheap route and have gone the cheap route, and it's fine when it all works, but what happens when your friend's forklift gets dumped on the side of the road or stuck in a ditch and or it comes back and he's like, hey man, what'd you guys do to this? It's just never good. I always prioritize the relationships there first. The other thing, we're going to have riggers move two machines internally in the next couple of weeks. We finally moved into our state-of-the-art 
assembly and fulfillment room, which is it, man, it's beautiful. And there's just tweaking the finishing touches. And we are relocating our grinding cell closer to the entrance of that room, which will free up extra space on the opposite corner of the shop. So we're going to have the riggers come in and move that grinder and then also move one of the VF2s where the grinder was so that we can start conboning our material. So we actually have a three bin system, not two bin system. So I thought we could just pick, we can, we have moved the grinder in-house. It's a little bit hairy because you have to use straps, pick it up from some lifting points, but I'm just opting to have the riggers come in and just, they've moved it and we'll go with SoCal machinery movers are the most competent in Southern California. Just move it. They'll move the VF2. They'll align it. They just need final approval on site, but I'll just say, I just want it spaced in line with the others and just make it happen. But no, I thought of looking into airbags or skates and we used to have them. We have that, which I mentioned a long time ago, that large format CNC router that we moved with skates because it's a relatively low dollar, comparatively a low dollar machine compared to a Haas VF. Mm -hmm. And it's light. It's like 1500 pounds. So you can do it. But yeah, it's just the liability of you making a mistake or one of the guys making a mistake. And then there's like this black cloud hanging above your guy that did something stupid. I'd just rather write a check for a few hundred extra dollars and have it done right from the get-go. Yeah. Peace of mind. If you can buy it and you can afford to buy it, yep. buy it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tim Ferriss said, if you have a problem, but you have the money to solve the problem, then you don't have the problem. Don't have a problem. I love that. Yeah. So I've really been enjoying this book by Kiyoshi Suzaki that I talked mm-hmm. about, I think on the last episode. Give us the title again. The New Manufacturing Challenge, Techniques for Continuous Improvement. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading excerpts from this in every morning meeting for the past week. And I've got, at this point, almost a dozen bookmarks in it in different places for things that I'm wanting to go back and reread and chew on a little bit more. But I actually posted a quote from it on my Instagram yesterday, which I thought was really interesting. It was talking about line stoppages. And the idea was that we shouldn't be afraid of line stoppages. Rather, we should even encourage them in some cases because a line stoppage exposes a problem. Yeah. The line stoppage pauses all emotion and shines a spotlight on a problem. That's good. We've also been onboarding a few new employees. We've hired three new production employees in the past six weeks. One of them just quit, which we, I actually haven't really had that happen before where an employee gets onboarded works for us for a month or so, and then says, you know what? I, this isn't working for me. I don't want to be here. Mm. And it is what it is. People's lives are their lives and they've got other stuff going on. And there are reasons why I could see somebody loving our shop or somebody not loving it. Mm-hmm. But the, the process of starting over from scratch when we hire new employees, we have no lean manufacturing experience and onboarding them. So this morning's morning meeting, we just did a thorough re- review of the eight wastes Mm-hmm. Examples from each category, understanding the difference between value and non-value added work. Mm-hmm. And every time we have that discussion about value and non-value added work, there's always some disagreement among the staff about whether that's the appropriate way to describe it. Because one of the guys this morning said, like, but I feel like using value that way is not the way people use the word value. Like it, you're, it means something different. And I said, mm. no, no, that's fair. In lean manufacturing, value added is a technical term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has a definition. This is not marketing. This is not sales, where value is about perception. In lean manufacturing, the term value means changing or improving the product in some material way that the customer will pay for. Mm-hmm. But 
in marketing, I really like Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy, mm-hmm. and Marty Neumeyer's book, The Brand Gap. Both of them talk a lot about how much perception is involved in the value both of your brand and your products and your services. Mm-hmm. And Rory particularly talks about creating psychological value and all the different ways that you can change a person's impression of and their enjoyment or satisfaction of an unchanged thing by changing just how they perceive it. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that there's the reason he calls it alchemy is because you haven't fundamentally changed the thing, but they have a completely different experience of it if you reframe it for them. And that reframing is often enough to make a satisfying experience unsatisfying. You liked something until so-and-so said this about it, then it made you think about it differently and you no longer liked that thing. We've all had that experience. Yep. Or the opposite, that until the customer's perception was changed, they were not in a position to actually fully appreciate the value that was there. Yes. But the very mechanistic Newtonian Value is objective, measurable, concrete. There's a funny thing where some things have exponentially more value than they cost to create. And it isn't just to establish the value of a thing, take the cost of materials plus the cost of labor, multiply by some fixed multiple, and that's your value. Mm -hmm. Many of the greatest innovations that I use every day, little technical tools and different things, are themselves relatively cheap. Mm-hmm. But the value of them to me is measured in what would the impact be if I didn't have this anymore? Mm-hmm. Not the question of how much would it cost me to buy another one of these. Right. Yeah. If I lost this one, I'd buy another one. But if I couldn't have this thing anymore, yeah, what would I be losing? You know, that that's interesting. I had a conversation with a customer and he said, hey, I, I got to do a DIY vacuum chuck. I need some help. And ideally, we sell them a starter package, which includes a chuck. And so I said, look, that's fine. We'll help you through it. You need these four items. And we got through the end of it and he had a very, very unique part. And I said, hey, you're the owner, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Can we talk big picture for a minute? And this is a delicate conversation I, I, that I've had often. I said, you're going to get this, everything you need. It's going to be around $900, but for just, I don't know what the price difference is, $600 more, you could have this, a complete system using our vacuum chuck and overnight, you can be programming your part and op one and op two instead of programming op one, two, and three to do a DIY vacuum chuck. And we can ship it overnight and you'll have it by 1030 AM tomorrow. I'm just going to put this out there. It's your decision. But if I were in your shoes and you're already under the gun with your customer, I would just pay the extra $500. We ship you our product. You get it. When 10 AM shows up, 30 minutes from opening the box, you'll have the vacuum chuck set up and you'll be making your parts. I think it's worth $500 to make this part right and please your customer. But I just want to give you that big picture. He's like, you know what? I never thought of it that way. Thank you for saying that. That was very tactful. Let's do it. And I said, great. How about this to sweeten the deal? We'll ship it overnight. I'll give at like second or third day air. I don't know. He was in New York. And he said, great deal. And that's kind of like customer for life. That's what we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. Just conveying the value. You know what? I realized this. I made a video and I put it out about three or four months ago about our smart plate. It's the rotary riser that the rotor units sit on. I did not convey the value of that as best as I could. And I had this epiphany. When you put a smart plate on a VF2 
two, which is a very common mill. If you can put it on there and you can get the body of the rotary unit outside of your cutting envelope and you free up 10 inches or even six inches, that extra travel in X is the difference between a VF1 and a VF2, if I remember correctly. The difference in price between those is thousands of dollars. And we sell you a riser that clears up X travel for $395 so that you can actually have the utility of a VF2 instead of a VF1. That's the value. If we just sold it on that value alone, I could charge $1,000 for it. Stop turning your VF2 into a VF1, get your $5,000 back and buy the smart plate. Now, I feel fine at selling it at $395. It actually looks simple, but it's kind of complex to make and there's a lot of blanchard grinding, hard anodize and all that stuff. But that's the value. The value is that you bought a machine and you don't get to use it to the capacity or the dollar amount that you bought it for. Here's the $400 item that actually gives you your value back. That's the right messaging. Yep. Yeah. That's very much the kind of stuff that Rory talks about in Alchemy is the example that he uses that I thought was really clever. And one of the first things I heard was just part of a TED talk or something he did. And he was talking about an espresso. He's like, I have an espresso machine. I love my espresso machine. I may have mentioned this on the pod before, but he said, but any way you look at it, Nespresso is a very expensive way to make a cup of coffee at home. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because you have to buy the pods and the pods are a couple of dollars a piece or whatever it is. And he said, but the way that Nespresso has framed their product and presented what you're getting, they are by their advertising, by their messaging, teaching you what to compare it to. And you're not comparing an Nespresso to a 40 cent cup of drip coffee. Mm-hmm. You're comparing Nespresso to a $6 Starbucks coffee. And at that point, making your own cup of coffee at home for $2.50 feels like a savings. Yeah, cheap. Yeah. If the alternative was to buy the $6 coffee at Starbucks, that realization that what you are comparing it to has everything to do with how you perceive the value of a thing. Mm -hmm. And that those comparisons are often subconscious, not explicit. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you make the comparison explicit, you can often completely change how someone perceives a thing. So an example is we make products for Filster holsters. We've we've been good friends with theirs and close business. I wouldn't say partners because we're not officially a partnership, but we've been- Healthy working relationship. Yeah. We've been been collaborators, not in the the Vichy sense, but collaborating productively. But- They have a number of products in their family, some of which we're licensed to sell on our website. We are the OEM for those parts. We do all the laser cutting and the sewing and assembly for the parts that they sell on their site. But we also have a licensing deal where we can use some of the components that they've developed and build them out as complete products on our end. And the question of why a person should buy a holster fully assembled with a Filster Enigma faceplate and a belt and all this other stuff as a complete turnkey package from us when they could buy a less expensive holster from somewhere else and they could buy the belt and faceplate as a kit and they could get all the components and put it all together themselves, establishing the value of that is not just, well, we actually bundle in a little savings. So you get all of these components together and we knock $10 off the price of these accessories because we're bundling them. That's not the value of it. The value of it is if you've never built one of these before, there's a good chance you're going to find it kind of frustrating. 
You're going to end up spending a bunch of time double checking, triple checking. Did I do this right? Are the washers in the right place? Is all this correct? You can pay the people who build these for a living to build it for you. And it'll come out of the package exactly right. Every fastener properly torqued, everything test fit. It'll be just, you take it out of the package, you put it on. You do not have to take out your holster, take it apart, take out this kit, open it up, spread it out watch an instructional video and then gradually work through it. And at the end, find out, oh, you put this one thing wrong and then have to take it apart and do it again. Yeah, yeah. You just, you hit the easy button and basically we do the assembly essentially for free because we have all the tools, the dedicated workstations and the skilled employees to build those kits super fast. Well, think of it this way, Andrew, that's the pain they feel as they're trying to get it right, to take it to the next level, like this would be a crazy, amazing, powerful marketing tool if you were to do a video, but I'm doing a screenplay in my head. It's some tagline that shows like a small child and there's a bad guy in the shadows and the tagline is, (laughs) are you really hoping that you built your holster right? Yeah. it's Look, I know it's tacky, but I don't know. It's it's, You you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, there's- Unfortunately, that, that's the, the biggest space. pain. Sorry, that's the biggest pain. The the that's the primary pain. The secondary pain is building the holster, DIY yes. holster. If yeah. you need this life-saving piece of equipment, yeah, and it fails because you misassembled it, huge problem. Totally. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the industry that we're in, a lot of companies dig deep into the fear-based marketing pool uh-huh. and just tons and tons of stuff is being marketed and sold to people who don't need it and won't use it by companies who know that they can reliably stoke unreasonable fear and paranoia in people Mm -hmm. and then use that to sell them talismans that will make them feel better but not actually make them safer. That kind of marketing is anathema to me. I hate it. Every time I see it, I look at it and go, this is the lowest kind Uh of manipulation to try to frighten a customer into buying your product that you're obviously not even trying. You're not even bothering to try to make a case for this is going to make your life better, easier or something. It's just a, if you don't get this and something bad happens, you'll never forgive yourself. So buy now. That's like, (laughs) yuck. Yeah. When you frame it like that, it's gross. It's yeah. so gross. It's so gross. For me, like we want to convey the value of a competent product backed by a competent company. And I've thought of like marketing, I don't know, there's not the technology to do that yet on our e-commerce site. But if a customer did put in the four items that are typically purchased to make a DIY chuck, if there was a pop-up that could show something, I'm not going to do this, I'm never going to do it. But it would be the equivalent to saying, imagine explaining to your customer why you're late again on an order because you decided to make your own vacuum chuck rather than purchase one and have it there the next day. It would be that equivalent, like that type of discomfort. It's not fear-based. It's just like, we're trying to like create a well-oiled purchasing and setup and uh, adaptation, application, all that to the customer. That's our goal, a complete set. That's why we sell all of our products in starter packages because you don't have to go to Granger for this, McMaster for that, and call your supplier for this plate or pallet. It's yeah. all in one. So, yeah. Yeah. That stuff makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think where it was. I'm sure it was probably on Instagram. It was some kind of meme like, why would I buy this for $125 when I can make it myself for only 700 
And you're like, oh no. Okay, so so I posted something on Instagram years ago that okay, I was we were kind of forced in this position. We had our robot, we were getting it set up, and I called Haas and said, Hey, here's a serial number, we need the auto door for it. And they said, Oh, the auto door on that year in particular is not field installable. It's one of the rare years that you can't what? So we had to do it our own. And I thought, oh, this will be easy. That it, it totaled maybe 150 bucks of parts from McMaster. And it took me like 12 hours over a Saturday and Sunday so that we could have the robot up and running on Monday. It was just, I gave up my weekend with my wife and at that time, my even younger children. And I thought, wow, the silver lining is I've only spent $150 on auto door parts where the closest off the shelf one, well, the Haas would have been, if they could have done it, Cheaper, it would have been eight hundred, and there's auto doors for like in the thousands, two, two, three, four, five thousand. But no, it's never cheaper to DIY it. That's for sure. I like to make a lot of things ourselves, but I like to make things that I can't easily get someplace else. Oh yeah. Oh, I need this or that odd little thing. I can design it and three D print it, and the chance I'll be able to design it and three D print it in less time than it would take me to actually do a thorough Google search. Uh-huh. to see if a thing like this already exists, then plus the cost of the thing and the shipping time. Sure. If yeah, I, exactly. And, and if I can make it myself today and use it today, mm-hmm. that's valuable. Now, in, even in the case of the, va- the guy at the beginning you talked about the vacuum chuck, it would be one thing to say, go ahead and ship me everything but the vacuum chuck. It'll be here to me in three days. I already have all the plate stock I need, and I've already got a program written for this. I'm just going to drop it on my machine. And by the time your package gets here, mm-hmm. I'll have that vacuum chuck fully built, ready to just drop in and install. Mm-hmm. Well, even there, okay, maybe. But for a lot of things, I just, I want to be able to get it out of the box and have it work. I want the Apple experience. Yeah. I do not want to open all this stuff up, immediately have to download new drivers for everything and update this OS and change those settings and then run this compatibility test and get this adapter and this other conversion cable and that, no, 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 no. I want to get it out of the box and I want it to talk. Well, well, we're speaking the same language because you're just trying to get rid of the pain points. And ultimately that's one of the pushes in our companies. We're trying to get rid of the pain points for our customers. So yeah, no, conveying value, that's huge. It's tricky because oftentimes people have used the three-legged stool analogy you have time, you have energy, you don't have money. Obviously, I'm not going to push a guy to buy a, a starter package. I'm going to say, yeah, hey, if that three-legged stool, the short leg is money, here you go. I will hold your hand. Here's a playlist. Go with it. But if it's like I've got 16 machines and we do several million a, a year, no, 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 no. Just please just buy the starter package. It's fully supported. We got a, a robust video lo- library that we can back you up. Yeah, it's just conveying that value. We're actually starting to see, we've been at a very steep growth trajectory rate for many, many years, but we're seeing like even more of an uptick in our pallet systems. And I'm starting to see companies use the term that I'm pretty sure that we coined of high density work holding. And because people realize that standing in front of a machine, making one part, one man, one operation per each one cycle is a pain point that just needs to go away. And so the products we're releasing in 2024 are fit in line with actually, okay, we can get you to fly through op one using this special palette. It's called an easy palette. And then op two, you can design your own custom palettes. Cause right now our palettes are like blank canvases and you have to 
employ creativity, stuff like that. But to convey the value of an op one easy palette that is just a standard, easily reconfigurable top surface, yep. and then you get the ground running. That's what I'm going to lean into as far as the, what we're trying to communicate as a company. Switching gears a little bit, one thing that we're going to be doing here this next week is a roundup of everyone in the shop's favorite lean improvements from 2023. We're we'll releasing a video on it. Very cool. We've never done that before. And I know like Paul Akers does an end of year video every year and I've watched them all and it just had never occurred to me to do it. So we started a shop-wide signal thread specifically like, what are your favorite? Each person pick one improvement and then we're videoing each employee talking about that improvement that they really enjoy and what it did for them, what it saved them what job it made easier, why they like it, why it's just fun to use, whatever. And I really like that as a sort of end of the year, end of the season, get a fresh start, look back on what we did this year. Mm -hmm. What are some real wins that moved the needle for each individual person here in the shop, in the places where they work on the parts that they make? What really made a difference for them? Mm -hmm. I love that. I can talk fast enough to get through one improvement per employee in a quick video, but I actually want each employee to get to explain it themselves mm -hmm. because my perception of what they value about it and what they say they value about it are probably not going to be exactly the same thing. That's right. And then we just keep going. We were, I was making lean improvements today. I took a video of a change we made to one of our heating presses and dropped it into our shop-wide chat and said, hey, Josh asked me for some way to limit the travel on this hinge that opens because it always opens too far. And then there's this wasted motion of having to go through this extra travel to close it back up again. Let's find a way to install a limiter strap on this so that it goes to here and can't go further. And we did that. And after two hours, my quick and dirty little duct tape solution broke. Mm -hmm. And then Brian came along and took it and ran with it and fixed it up, made it way more secure. And by the end of the day, we were already using in production the second iteration of that idea. And it was immediately making a difference. Josh said, this is way easier. I'm not having to reach that far. I'm not having to like lean over the edge of the table and reach to get this handle because it swung too far away from me. I'm just, just, it's right where I want. It's right in front of me. I can just grab it. It's easy. It's an improvement. Yeah. I love great. that stuff. If an employee has a hard time choosing what improvement they liked most from the last year, because there were so many good ones, that is awesome. No, I was thinking about Lucas Holland is a, an employee at FastCap. I think he may be the general manager at this point, but he posted a video where he used that phrase, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. And so, yeah, that's the heart of lean. Just go try it, do an improvement. And duct tape and cardboard should be the first iteration. The fact that it lasted a few hours and it was Andrew Henry's idea, great. Now go improve on that. That's not a point of failure. It's a point of completion. We got partially the way there. It proved, yeah, let's finish it out. I love yeah, that. This idea was worth trying. And now we need to make something more streamlined and more durable out of it so we can actually use it every day and have it not break. That's right. Yeah, that's great. Another thing, rewind a few minutes. So that's also really good. Like we have, of course, we use Signal for intercompany communication. So there's a main chat thread. Like if you're an employee hired here on day one, you get added to a chat thread called Pearson Progress where we post improvements. And it's great because our mission statement, there's a line that we're called to equip and inspire community of forward-thinking manufacturers. And I said, if we're not inspiring each other in-house, who are we to attempt- Presume to inspire anybody outside. Exactly, exactly. And there's guys that are quietly making these amazing improvements. And I walk by and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is genius. 
why is that not in the chat? Oh, I just humble guy doesn't want to post it or Didn't something. Didn't get around to it. Yeah. Or there's many excuses or improvements are just not being made. So the, the last thing I wanted to bring up from the Suzaki book that I mentioned earlier is oh, yeah, yeah. in the morning meeting yesterday, I went over his explanation of the five whys, which goes back to Taichi Ono at Toyota. And the idea of if you encounter a problem, ask why five times. Yes. So that you don't just ask, why did this symptom occur? And we had just had in the shop this week, several cases where something went wrong. Parts got misdrilled at a manual drill press or something got jammed up. We, had, we made some bad parts on one of our industrial, our CNC sewing machines because a fixture was misaligned because the fixture was worn because it didn't have a second pin to secure it in location so it couldn't rotate. If we asked one why these sewn parts were bad, why? Well, because the fixture was slightly misaligned. If we stop there, then the only solution is, well, make sure the operator knows to make to check that the fixture is always properly aligned. But the actual solution is rebuild the fixture so it can't be misaligned. It has multiple pins that locate it and it can't shift even a little bit. And then asking, why was it misaligned? Well, it was misaligned because it fits loosely in the frame. Why is it fits loosely? Well, because it's worn. Why is it worn? Because the parts often snag on it when you're loading and unloading, which means it gets rubbed back and forth and it's gradually become looser and looser on the pin that it fits on. Why are the parts snagging when you take them in and out? Well, because that 3D printed fixture was designed with a couple of hard corners and angles that are just waiting to get snagged on. And so I went all the way back. And what I did, rather than just tell the operator, hey, make sure you push that corner in to make sure it's fully seated over there, is I took that jig off and I threw it away. And I said, this machine is just going to be down until I make a new jig. Mm -hmm. And then I went and I devised an updated version of the jig. I smoothed out a lot of the internal geometry because you have to slide these fabric, this webbing in through a slot and then line it up and you catch it when you come back out if you tug too hard or too fast or your angle isn't exactly right. And so I redesigned the inside shapes of the fixture so that there aren't those hard corners. I added fillets, I added chamfers, I smoothed a bunch of things out, and then I added two steel locating pins to make sure that once it's in, it stays square to the machine. Good. And that five whys, walking back and walking back and walking back and walking back and not just band-aiding it by telling the operator, be more careful, double check this every time, Yeah, was such a relief. And the operator was grateful to be able to go do something else and then come back to a machine that was ready to run and wasn't a shopping cart that was constantly swerving. Right. I love if the, it. If the shopping cart always swerves and my solution is remember to keep pulling it to the right so it doesn't swerve to the left, instead of saying, let's take that busted wheel off and replace it so it rolls straight. Yeah. Nah. Hey, I know you got to go in 30 seconds, but I just want to, I'm excited for you because going back to that concept of having, like whether it's a consultant or some outside person seeing things differently, like you have new employees coming on, multiple new employees coming on this year. Fresh eyes. Yeah, fresh eyes. And to build in a culture that, hey, you're new here, but you need to be vocal about this. Ask lots of questions. Ask those whys. That's great. Good to talk to you. And I'll catch up with you next week. Hopefully, by next episode, we will have a lathe. Very exciting. In the shop, barring unforeseen circumstances. Great. I'll teach you everything I know about lathes, which is how to power them on. Awesome. <laughs>